Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And that's on page 978 if you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles. After several weeks of a series on Advent, coming up through Epiphany last week, we're now returning to our series on Ephesians. And if you recall, we've been talking about this book of Ephesians and asking this question, what does it tell us, what does Ephesians tell us about what it means to become a community of grace? What it means for us to become more of a community of grace? So we're going to be stepping back into that this morning. Now before we read our text, let's pray together and ask that the Lord would open this up for us. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and so we ask that you would be gracious to us and open it up for us. Open our hearts to be responsive to you. We are in need of you and your ongoing work of regeneration and healing in our lives. So we pray that you would do that good work, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, let, let me say, whenever you put together a sermon, you're indebted in many ways. I'm indebted particularly this week to uh, some sermons I heard recently by Sinclair Ferguson, a PCA pastor in South Carolina, and one of my formerly fellow RUF ministers in Mississippi, Les Newsom. So, Les and Dr. Ferguson, if you're out there, thank you very much. Um, now, if you recall, if you've been a part of our series in Ephesians up till now, you remember that in the first three chapters of Ephesians, the first half of the book, Paul goes to great lengths to lay this theological foundation of what God has done in our lives. God's initiation, God's sovereign work in His people to change them, to bring them to life. In Paul's words, to bring us from death to life. And then in chapters 4 through 6, as we've already started to turn the corner in that as we, when we left off our series, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul turns now to, from that theological basis of God's sovereign work in our, in our lives to what, is, what does that look like playing out in our lives now? How are we to respond? The second half of the book is full of exhortations. And it would be easy for us at times over the next few weeks as we look at these to forget all the groundwork he's already laid. This is all begins with the sovereign work of God in our life. God is the one who accomplishes his purposes. And now here's what he's doing in the life of his people Chapters 4 through 6 essentially ask, answered this question, how then, sh- how then shall we live? God's done this work in our lives. How are we going to live now in response? Now our text this morning steps into the second half of the book when he's talking about God's people, he, the church. What does it mean for us, his new people, to really live out this Christian life? And here's what we're going to see in our text this morning. That if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who follows Jesus then you're now a fundamentally new 
and different person than you were before you followed Jesus, before you came to faith. We're going to look at just two halves of this as Paul lays it out. Two things. Who we were, and now who we are. Okay, so let's take a look first at, at who we were. And this is in verses 17 through 19. Look at some of the things that stand out in this list. Uh, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. For a while I was on an email listserv with uh, a group of other folks for discussion, and we had soccer penalties for our email listserv. Uh, if you said something that was, that was borderline offensive, then, then you got a yellow card. And if you said something that was really too far out there, you got a red card and you got kicked off the list. Okay. Now, these first few verses uh, in this text that we're looking at this morning, for many of us, we're holding up our yellow cards. And some of us are maybe holding up our red cards. Listen to what he says about what kind of people we are outside of Christ. Think about, and you can feel sort of the offense of this. Brings up questions like this. Are we really as bad off as he says? Or questions like this. Uh, Before I became a Christian, was that really true of me? Was it really that desperate? Or maybe an immediate question for some of us might be, but what about friends and family members of mine who are not following Jesus? Is Is that really Is that really it? Is that really what God thinks about us and who we are? Paul's bringing up the point that as people, we're all walking in a direction. We're all moving. Paul says that we're all either we're moving in one of two directions. We're people who are either moving towards God or we're moving away from Him. In these first few verses, he says, before you came to know Christ, you were people in every possible way who were moving away from Christ. Now he starts off saying, speaking about the Gentiles, um, ethnically people who are not Jews. The reason he's using the term Gentiles is because this church that he's talking to is primarily made up of people who were Gentiles. They didn't grow up as Jews. They came to faith in Jesus, and now they're together in this church. And he's saying, this group of people that you came from, this is what's true about them, and this is what used to be true about you. And he says that these Gentile people, those without Christ, he says they're marked by four things. He talks about the futility of their minds. He says they're darkened in their understanding. He says they're alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. Is it really that dark? It's interesting, if if you're somebody, um, let's say you have friends who are not believers, or or you're not one yourself, and you think of all the questions that come to mind, all the intellectual questions that feel to you like great roadblocks to actually embracing Christianity to actually believing Scripture, to actually stepping into this life of Christianity. Paul's point is that there's always a moral aspect to our objections to Christianity. There's a moral aspect to the whole component of us being people trying to know God. It's important for us to deal honestly and intelligently with all of the very good questions that people ask us about Christianity. How can this be true? How does this fit together? important things, and we need to address them well and give them full weight. But at the same time, at the heart of the matter, our issue is not fundamentally intellectual. Our issue is fundamentally uh, moral. You see, good answers are never enough to actually change somebody's life. At the end of the day, it has to be the work of the Spirit. And Paul says remarkable things like, at the heart of our being is not an openness to God, 
but a hardness of heart, a resistance to him. And he's saying that we all have these commitments of our heart that inform everything about how we think. And he says that outside of Christ, our hearts are hard and they're turned away from hearing the truth of who God is. A lot of times when we bring questions to God or hear questions about God, the underlying assumption seems to be that God is hiding himself and he's making it difficult for us to understand. And we have to go find him out. But the truth is, God is not hiding from us. The problem is that we don't or can't know the real God of the universe. The problem is that fundamentally we don't like this God. Sinclair Ferguson says this, In the end, intellectual rejection of God is a mode of the human heart's attempt to keep God at a convenient distance. What does Paul say? The result of this hardness of heart is alienation from God, a life lived away from him. And he goes on to use a vivid image about what that feels like. He says that we are callous. Verse 19, they become callous and have given themselves up. This idea of being callous, it's a vivid image. You know what it's like when you wear a pair of shoes that just don't fit quite right, and you start to get a blister, and if, if you keep if you keep wearing those shoes, in spite of the fact that your body is telling, that, telling you to buy a new pair, if you keep wearing those shoes, that blister is going to burst and a callus is going to begin to form. And down the road, you won't feel the same pain you felt from those bad-fitting shoes anymore. But there's a callus that forms, and that's what Paul says. There is a callus that forms over our hearts that causes us to resist God. And he goes on to say, not only are we callous, we're controlled. He says that they have given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy practice, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And that's not the kind of language that we use very often. But maybe something in uh, more common parlance for us, this is the language of addiction, of things that grab a hold of us and drive us. Greedy, can't seem to get enough, never seem to be satisfied with it. Most of us can attest at least some experience in our life where we thought we were trying something, taking something on, and we had full control of it. And before long, you find that it actually has control of you. That's what Paul's talking about. Our hearts racing away from God, filling themselves with other things that then enslave us, that then cause us to be addicted to them, that then harden us and, call- and create calluses in us as we turn away and run away from God. Paul says this was true of all of us before we came to know Christ. Now what do we do with this? Let me just give you two thoughts. If you're somebody who's following Jesus, you know that many areas of your life still in some degree feel like this. You know what it's like to still feel areas of your heart that just feel hard and need to be softened. Many of us know what it's like to continue to wrestle with things that seem like they have gripped our souls and are still controlling us. So many of these things that tend to draw us away from Jesus. We know what this still feels like. And the second thing, this ought to do a lot to inform our attitude to people who don't know Jesus. Two things. Maybe that this would help open our eyes and open our hearts. Open our eyes in this way. That if we are Christians reaching out to the world around us, that we would be people who are unsurprised and unshockable by what we see in the world. If this is really true, if the Bible itself tells us this is what is true of us away from God, then what can possibly surprise us that we see when we walk out into the world? 
And if we're not surprised and we're not shocked, then we might be in a place to actually bring real hope in the healing of the gospel into other people's lives. We need to have open eyes and we need to have an open heart. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this about himself. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and I am the chief of those. Matthew 9.12, Jesus said, you know, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. It shouldn't surprise us. Paul says, this is what's true of our world following something other than Jesus. We should be unshocked. And we should have the ability to compassionately actually engage people because we follow a Savior who came to save real sinners, people really like us. Paul goes on and says, that's who we were. Look at what he says about who we are, verses 20 through 24. We're going to look at three things about who we are. Now now in Christ, we are people first who hear a new voice. Um, I mentioned uh, Charlie Brown and Peanuts a few weeks ago. You remember, for those of you guys who watch Charlie Brown cartoons, when they go to school and they're sitting there and they're listening to the teacher and the teacher sounds like wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah. And then they'll say, yes, ma'am, wah-wah-wah-wah-wah, no, ma'am, answer the questions. And it's just this beautiful picture of any time a teacher or any adult in the show talks, it's just, it's just, it's just that, okay? <laughs> now, Paul is saying that before we come to know Jesus, this is what the voice of Scripture and the voice of God sounds like to us. We can't hear it. We need, we need to be given ears that hear. Now, of course, before you come to know Jesus, you can intellectually grasp the truth of Christianity. You can understand when you come and hear a sermon what the pastor is talking about. You can understand those concepts. You can hear it, but you don't hear it. You can take it in, but you can't take it in to the deepest part of you where it actually brings change. What Paul is saying is that, when, that we are new people. We are people who now have been enabled by the Spirit to hear a new voice, that it would come inside of us. Maybe some of you remember what it was like when that first happened to you. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you heard sermon after sermon and the gospel time and again, but you remember a time when, though you'd heard it all your life, you first heard it, and you said, oh, this is what that's all about. Now in verse 20, kind of lose the sharpness of this in English, but there's a, in the Greek, the, the way the sentence is constructed, it, there's this emphatic you right at the start of the sentence. You, but you did not learn Christ that way. All this stuff about what is true of those who don't know Jesus, but he says, but you, that is not true of you. That's not how you've learned Christ. Now, learn Christ. This is Paul and his, um, you know, his poor grammar, right? We read this and we're like, you don't, you, don't learn, you don't learn Christ, you, you learn about Christ. You don't, you, you don't, you don't learn a person, you, you learn about them. Uh, years ago when I was an English teacher for high school students studying Shakespeare, you know, at the end of the day on an exam, the, your students have to give you all the, the facts about the things that you've studied about Shakespeare, and they have to give you the facts about what happened in the plays. Um, My hope for them was they could discuss his works. My hope really for them was at the end of the day that they were going to appreciate what they read. That that was going to move them somehow. So they were learning about Shakespeare. But they weren't learning Shakespeare. They They didn't know him. They weren't learning the person himself. But here you've got Paul saying that you would learn Christ. 
Now, interestingly, there's no other example of this in the New Testament. There's no other example in Greek literature prior to the Bible of anybody ever saying anything like this, this kind of <laughs> grammatical construction that you learn a person. And I make a big deal of that only to say this. When you come to Jesus, you're not just learning a set of facts. You are walking into a relationship with a person. You are learning a person, not a concept. You're not just learning about Christ, you're learning Christ himself. The gospel doesn't simply present us with this list of facts about Jesus. Son of God, born in a manger, lived a perfect life, died in my place, raised from the dead. Check, check, check. The gospel doesn't bring us simply Christ's resume. It brings us Christ himself the person of Jesus, into our lives. Being a Christian is not simply about giving intellectual assent to the truths of the faith, though of course it includes that. Being a Christian is about being a person who's been brought into a relationship with our Savior, into a relationship with our God, into a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. He goes on in verse 21 saying, assuming that you have heard about him, and this is his way of saying, I mean, he's, he's emphasizing that as you've heard, of course you've heard, He's confident about this, but he, in our English translation here, it says, assuming you have heard about him. Again, in the Greek, it simply says, assuming that you have heard him. Okay, that's interesting. Paul's assumption is that every time you heard about Christ, every sermon that you heard, every Bible study that you went to, every time you had somebody telling you about Jesus faithfully, you weren't simply hearing about Jesus. You were hearing Jesus. You were hearing the real Jesus speaking to you. Now, why do we do what we're doing right now every week? Come together and we worship, and a part of the way we worship is a sermon. We open up this book, and we talk about what it means and the implications for our lives. Why do we do that? Because we believe that when we open this and read this word and hear it explained and applied, we don't simply hear about Jesus we hear Jesus speaking into our lives. And probably most of us know what that feels like, at least at times, to suddenly think, there must be a spotlight on me right now. This is God at work in my life, even right now. And that's what we're doing throughout the week when you open your Bible and you pray and you're by yourself. Or when you're in a small, a small group Bible study. What are we doing? Not simply gaining facts. Not simply filling out uh, you know, the interesting side details of culture and life in first century Jerusalem. What are we doing? We're meeting with Christ himself, and we're looking to have him speak into our lives. So the first thing that happens is you know, that we get these new ears and hear a new voice. Second thing, we receive a new identity. Paul uses this language of putting off and putting on, um, the same kind of language that you would use every day for taking off your clothes and putting them back on. He talks about putting off your old self, or if you have an older translation, it would say putting off the old man. What's he saying? That when we come to Christ, when you come to faith, that you put off your old self, your old identity. It gets taken off like a bad suit of clothes that are worn out and tattered. And what was that old self? It's everything he described in the first half of this in verses 17 through 19. Everything that he says we've been rescued from. He says when you came to Christ... Those clothes were taken off of you and you stepped out of them. And now you have stepped into a new self. Paul's words earlier in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 5, is where he says that we were once dead in our trespasses. 
in our old life, in our old existence. But God Himself brings us to life. And we put off our old selves. Then He goes on and says that we're put on our new selves. He says that it's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, somebody in the Greco-Roman world, when they hear this true righteousness and holiness, they would hear that as a summation of everything that's good and virtuous. That that's what's reflective of, our, of this new self that we've put on. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, new has passed, the old is gone and passed away. Behold, the new has come. One of the commentators I read this week said it this way, this, this change, this taking off these old clothes and putting on the new. He called it a mighty break with the past. And that's what Jesus does in our lives. He brings this mighty break with the past. This mighty break between who we used to be and who he's turning us into now. And that means that this is true of you. That your old self has been taken off. And you've been given a new self. You've been given a new set of clothes. You aren't the person that you were before you knew Jesus. It means that Jesus is now the defining factor in who you are. When you look at yourself and ask the question, who am I? What's fundamental to my identity? The gospel tells us the fundamental to your identity now is that you belong to Jesus Christ. That is what yourself is now based on. It's no longer your childhood, however wonderful or tragic that might have been, or your family name, whether you are a first family of Virginia or a transplant from somewhere else in the United States. It's no longer your socioeconomic position, whether you are wealthy or whether you are not. You are now defined by the presence of Jesus in your life. Or more accurately, you are defined by Jesus, the one who's now brought you into his life. You've been given a new life. Now, there are two practical implications of this, at least. For one, you can now look honestly at your failures because they are no longer what defines you. You don't have to run away from them and you don't have to explain them away because you've been given a new identity in Christ. And you can now rest in God rather than run from Him because when, Christ, when God sees us, what does He see? The beauty and righteousness of Christ Himself. We've been given a new identity. Some of you are familiar with uh, the Confessions of Augustine his own uh, memoirs and tale of his life before he knew Christ and his life after he came to know Christ. He was somebody who gave himself to all kinds of things, and um, he was somebody who, um, whose life was running out of control. One day after he becomes a Christian, he's walking down the road, and he sees this woman that he used to uh, have intimate relationships with. And he walks by her, and he sort of nods to her and acknowledges her, and um, walks on by, and she stops him. She turns around, and she says, Augustine, it is I. And he says, yes, I know, but it is not I. He had been given a new self and made into a new person. So we receive this new identity, and then what else? We participate in a growing reality. Verse 23, Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, the put off and put on that are on either side of that Greek tense for that signify, can signify something that sort of happens in the past. 
But there's a change in tense in verse 23, and it's, it's a present tense, an idea of something, it's the idea of something that's ongoing. You're continually being renewed in your minds. This is an, there's an ongoing aspect of this. Now he goes, he goes on to say, renewed in the spirit of your minds. Um, this is another way of saying the totality of your being. Everything about you is being renewed. We are in ongoing need of the work of renewal, of the renewal of God in our lives even now. We're in ongoing need of growing in this life we've been brought into, of learning how to wear this new suit of clothes we've been given, to live in this new identity. Sinclair Ferguson again said this, It's no small thing to become a Christian. Our lives can never be the same again. Our kids um, are learning to dance. Okay? Now our son, he's a little less than a year and a half. He's learned, how to, he's learned how to walk. He's learning new things every day. But here is Henry dancing. Henry dance for us or he'll hear music. And he does this. He swings his right arm now a little bit, too. Henry got his dad's dancing gene, unfortunately. <laughs> but Caroline, when you ask Caroline, our daughter, to dance, what does she want to do? She wants to go put on her ballerina outfit and her little tutu. And then our little daughter, Caroline, is doing these little toddler pirouettes in our family room. Now, Caroline knows that if I'm going to put on this new suit of clothes... I'm going to dress up like a ballerina. Then I'm going to have to learn how to dance like a ballerina. Henry will have fun at parties one day. <laughs> but he will never dance in such a way that people look at that and say, that is beautiful and that is art. But what happens when a ballerina learns to dance? Exactly that. A new suit of clothes and a whole new life and a whole new way of dancing. Now, Paul's going to go on in these next couple chapters, and we're going to discuss in these next few weeks aspects of what does it mean to dance in these new suit of clothes. He's going to go on and talk about things like this, our speech. What are our words for, and how are we supposed to use them? Or our anger. You've been brought to Christ. Is it wrong now to get angry? How do we think about and wrestle with all the anger that still lurks in our hearts? Or bitterness. How are we to deal with the hard feelings that we still have towards others that seem at times to just control us? Or what does it mean in this new life of Jesus now to have a totally new understanding of sexuality? How is it that God's people are to honor God and be authentically human in this area of life too? Or our family lives. How is the presence of Christ in our lives going to affect and change what it means for us to be fathers? and mothers, husbands, and wives? What's it going to mean for our relationships as children to our parents, whether as young children or adult, or adult children? Paul's going to go into our work lives. What does it mean for us as new people now to relate to those who are in authority over us, our bosses, our employers? Paul's going to go on to tackle all these things in the rest of the letter. What does it mean for us to experience as believers this ongoing work of renewal? putting on these clothes, and now living in them, living authentically as God's new people. That's what Paul's going to take up. In Christ, we are new people. We are no longer what we were. Now that we've been brought into this life, God continues his renewing work of making us really look like that, 
of teaching us how to dance this new dance. And if we're going to be a community of grace, and if we're going to continue to become more and more a community of grace, then we're going to have to be more and more a community of people who are together learning how to dance in a way that is beautiful, that pleases our God, and is an authentic testimony to the world around us about the truth of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which often cuts before it heals. It is hard to hear the truth about who we are outside of you, but how much more gloriously does the gospel shine when we realize that you have overcome all of that. That you so graciously stooped down to take people who are running away from you and turn them towards you. You take off our old suit of clothes and you give us a brand new one. You take away our old identity and our old life and you give us one that shines with the beauty of Jesus. May our lives really reflect and grow in reflecting the beauty to which you've called us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.